Well, uh, I, uh, I received a, uh, uh, it's Pastor's Appreciation Month is coming. And, uh, you know, when I was up in Washington all those years, you know, I would get uh, Starbucks cards, you know, right? Plenty of Starbucks cards. And uh, I'd get uh, chocolates and things like that, you know. And, uh, but when I moved to Bakersfield, I began to get different type of gifts, and uh, I really appreciate, you know, this wonderful town that God's given me. So this year, for my pastor's appreciation, uh, I received combat knives, <laughs> and, uh, and they're, they're really, really cool, actually. Um, they're, you know, they're, look at that. It's pretty good, huh? Yeah, yeah. What do you do, what do, you do with this, by the way? I mean, what, what, you know, somebody gives you this. And what, you got them, huh? You know, I mean, this is like, you know, you should preach like this this morning, huh, you know? Uh, they're, uh, they're brand new, and they're, they're very sharp. Uh, I, I was uh, talking with somebody, and I was trying to put it back into its sheath, and I missed it, and I sliced open the side of my finger. Uh, well, it was about a millimeter, so, you know, for me, it was a big deal, but for most of you, uh, it was probably nothing. And, uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, to, to add to it, I also got a combat knife. It's a replica, uh, but a Marine combat knife from the Vietnam War. So, you know, that one, yeah, that looks like it could do something. Now, this is the one, you know. Yeah, Rambo, yeah. It doesn't have the compass, though, or the, the so I guess, you know, the Marines don't get what the Army gets or something. I'm not sure, but anyway. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, bet I, might, I might need this knife later on, huh? <laughs> so what is that saying? Never bring a, a gun to a knife fight. Um, so other way around, never bring a knife to a gunfight. But uh, I'll tell you, these are sharp, sharp. Uh, I, I, I felt this side, you know, some of you are going, whoa, Tom, be careful, you know. This side is, I mean, it is a two-edged, double-edged, sharp. It's probably the closest thing to a sword I have. Uh, actually, Roman swords, if you want a little bit of history, were probably only about that big. You know, that's what conquered the world right there, a sword about 18 inches long. And so uh, I want to thank you, Bakersfield, for being exactly who you are and uh, for welcoming me and for getting me, for arming me for the apocalypse uh, when it should come and... Uh, I really do appreciate this, but this morning, it actually fits. Uh, we're going to be talking about how Jesus himself has a very sharp, double-edged sword. And so if you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, beginning in verse 12 through 17, we're going to go ahead and talk about Jesus' swords. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, God, I ask we just keep it real. Lord, that you'd, uh, you'd just fill this place with your spirit. God, that uh, we'd be open to what you'd have to say. And just allow these words, Lord, to, to cut deep like a two-edged sword. In Jesus' name, amen. Beginning in verse 12, John writes, And to the angel, he's writing for Jesus, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. What Jesus means when he says he has a sharp two-edged sword 
is not that he literally has a sharp two-edged sword, although maybe he does. The two-edge that he's talking about is the two different references to what's called the Word of God in the Bible. When God fights, he doesn't fight literally with a sword and arms. When God fights, he speaks. He doesn't really have to fight very long. All he merely has to do is say something, and it's done, right? And so what Jesus is talking about here is the double-edged sword is the two-edged sword, which is one, one edge, is the written word. It's the Bible. It's what you have in front of you, right? It's what we read. It's, it's what, what's available to us in so many different translations and editions and all that kind of stuff. The second edge of the sword is the spoken word of God, what's called the rhema word of God. When we begin to speak God's word, whether it's a prophetic word or an encouraging word or an interpreting word like we're doing this morning, or when we speak the direct words of the Bible. A few years ago, I was uh, working with a young man who had bipolar disorder. Anybody ever heard of that or, or know somebody who has bipolar? I want to assure you, first of all, it's a very real disorder. It's a very real thing that people struggle with, uh, the, the, the physical imbalances and all of that. And, and this young man uh, really had it. He had very high highs, very low lows, and he was struggling to maintain balance, but he had very low self-esteem, and he was struggling with negative thoughts. And one of the things that his uh, psychiatrist encouraged him to do was to work with me, his pastor. And I was actually very encouraged by that. You don't always get that from psychiatrists. So I, I immediately knew I would like this guy if I ever met him. And so he came to me, and he said, you know, I just can't seem to clear the negativity out of my head. So what I do, I encouraged him to pray. And he went home, and he did that, and he, he came back, and he said, look, he said, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to keep it real. I'm going to be blunt honest. I pray, and I pray, and I pray, and it just doesn't seem to do anything. Anybody else ever relate to that? I pray, and I pray, and I pray. It just doesn't seem to do anything. And, and, and I could see the frustration. And so I looked at him, I said, okay, well, let's try something. Let's stop praying your words and start praying God's word. He went, oh, I'd never thought of that. That's a good idea. How do you do that? I said, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to give you a verse this week. And every time you begin to feel attacked or negative or that you're really starting to hemorrhage one way or the other with your mood swings and emotions, I want you to just stop and sincerely pray this word and mean it. Believe it. Consume it inside your soul. He said, okay, yeah, let's try that. So I gave him uh, the verse from 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, which says, greater is he who is in me than anything in the world, than he who is in the world. And he's like, oh, I like that. You know, I think, I think I can do that. So I said, every time you just begin to feel defeated, trapped, you, you just begin to feel it down, make sure you're taking your medicine. But along with that, I want you to just pray God's word. You don't have to add to it. You know, if you want to, that's fine. But I want you to start just praying the word of God. And he came back a week later and he said, you know what, Pastor? That worked. I mean, that really worked. He said, can I get another one? I, you know, I, I said, well, you should, you should get some of your own because there are going to be some that God leaps out in your heart, maybe a little bit bigger than, I, than it would be mine. But I will. I'll give you a few. And I, I gave him a few more. And he, and he would just begin to pray God's word. He just began to, you know, a, a, as he struggle or whatever. And month by month, 
I mean, there was just a real balance that he was coming into. He got a girlfriend. Before, he couldn't really hold down a relationship because he was just so, so shifty. He was able to hold down a job. Uh, his mom and dad, they're, they're, they call me up. Hey, we want to meet with you. Something is going on with our son. And we always knew that, you know, Christianity had some power. Is this Christianity? Is this what's happening? And, and I'd say, well, yeah, it's Christianity. But really what it is, is it's the word of God. It's a sharp two-edged sword. And it penetrates deep, even to the division of soul and spirit. After a few months, I get a call, and it's his psychiatrist. I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh, you know, he's probably mad at me because I'm about to put him out of business. I'm just kidding, (laughs) you know. But he's, he's, you know, and and I'm like, oh, man, what's what's he going to say? And so he he identifies himself, and I kind of knew it, you know, and I said, okay. And I said, well, how can I help you? He said, you know, um, can you give me, like, ten of those verses that I can use with my patients? Yes, I can! Yes. And I thought about it later. I'm like, wait a minute, though. You know, you kind of do have to believe it. Anyway, but I, I didn't go down that road. I gave him the verses and said, amen. Sometimes speaking that word is part of that two edge. We, we can read it all the time, but there are, there, there's something powerful in just speaking that and praying that over ourselves, especially if you're feeling down. I've had people come and say, you know, Tom, I just feel like so much like a loser. So you know what? Let's open up the Bible and let's just begin to speak some of these sentences, some of these verses that say you are anything but a loser when you are in Christ. Amen? And so part of that double edge is speaking it. There was a a few years ago, I was in a Bible study and one of the people had brought a tape. They're like, man, you guys, this is quite a few years ago. Uh, Man, you guys got to hear this. It was a cassette tape. Back when we use those, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and so we're listening to the tape, and it's a pastor in Texas. Now, I mean, you think we're armed here in Bakersfield? They are all carrying in Texas. You know, as I mean, as a fully armed state. Don't ever try to mess with Texas. <laughs> so some of you are like, yeah. You know. So so this pastor's preaching, and right down the aisle. Some extremely imbalanced individual comes in and he's going to shoot the pastor. I mean, who would want to do that? None of you, right? <laughs> You've never had that thought. <laughs> so he comes down the aisle and he pulls out a 38 special and he points it at the pastor. The pastor sticks out his hand and quotes from Romans and he says, What? No weapon? That's fashioned against me shall what? Prosper. He says it right at the man. The man squeezes the trigger six times. (laughs) (laughs) The pastor's still standing. So eventually some men of the church tackle and subdue the man. Uh, the thing I love about Bakersfield is not only would the men tackle him, but I think half you women would take him out too. And some of you, some of you ladies, are like, yeah, man, I take one for you, Pastor Tom. <laughs> so, so that they they bring in the forensic analysis, right? The the CSI people, and they recreate the whole thing where where he was standing and all that. And and the CSI specialist comes up to the pastor, and he says, you know, based on where the man fired. And where the shots, where the bullets were pulled out by the back of the wall, the man should have hit you all six times. 
Did the bullets go through him? No. The bullets go around him? I don't know. What do I know? The word of God is powerful. Amen. Amen. It, can, it, can, it can mess with bullets coming at you. You know, another time there was a conflict in, in our last church. And sometimes, even though I was on the youth pastor, they'd pull me off the line to, uh, to, to be the pastor on call to deal with some of these things. And, and there was this conflict between two people in the church, and it was just beginning to affect the church. Uh, they would not work it out. They kind of walked around each other. It was this huge, awkward thing, and they were both serving in the same ministry. And it was just like, you know, it was really beginning to be a stink. And so they said, you know, all right, Tom, why don't you try to figure this out? So I, I'm sizing up the two individuals, and I'm thinking, which one will break first, right? I mean, as, you know, I know it's a little mafia mentality, but I'm thinking, which, which one can I break first? And, and so I finally, I picked, the, I picked the other, I picked the guy, and I said, why don't you come in, and we'll have a meeting. And I'm talking with him, talking with him, trying to, you know, trying to get through to him, and he just wants none of it. He's mad. He's bitter. He's angry. He's not going to budge. And finally I said, all right, well, feeling like a failure. I'm like, all right, whatever. Uh, why don't we pray? And uh, so, we, so we get to praying. And uh, we're just praying and praying and praying. And all of a sudden, I kid you not, the man goes, oh. I was like, is he having a heart attack? Is he having digestion? What's going on here, you know? He just went, oh. And, and it was like something had went, Phew. And I'm looking at him, and I kind of lean in. I'm like, are you okay, you know? And he looked at me, and he's like, oh. he's like, man, I just, God just said something in my heart. I said, he did? He said, yeah. I said, well, what did he say? He said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. I'm thinking to myself, God, I wanted to break him. I wanted to break him. But Tom's word is not as powerful, not nearly as powerful as God's word. You know, it cuts down deep. Uh, We're not just playing with some little literature, you know, ancient literature. These words carry a weight and a meaning and a purpose that is beyond this world. And so <clears throat> he says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yeah, I remember the city of Pergamum in the ancient world was a city of a thousand shamans, people who practiced sorcery, black magic, uh, drug abuse, uh, you know, illicit sex, all these kinds of things. And it was worship. I mean, it was part of their religion to do this, to be involved in this. It was very much an appeal to the senses. And in Pergamon, Pergamon was built kind of on a, on a, on a hill, on a, on a big hill, 2,000-foot hill. And uh, up there, kind of not at the top, but almost to the top, was a, a big shrine, a big throne that they called Zeus's throne. So when you were walking about 20, 30 miles out, you'd see the big throne of Zeus as you're walking up into the city of Pergamum. And Satan says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. So what's Jesus' opinion of Zeus? Anyway, we'll leave that alone. But there was a big throne there. And oddly enough, this throne stood there for many, many years Albeit in ruins, you know, it didn't really survive antiquity, but it stood there in, in its, in its 
uh, crusty form for many, many years until the middle of World War II. And there was a semblance of it still there when Adolf Hitler came to visit. And he took one look and he told his Nazi engineers, I want you to disassemble this and we're going to rebuild it in Berlin and I'm going to preach from it. Well, they disassembled it, but they had a hard time putting it back together. And of course, in 1944, Adolf Hitler had a lot of other things on his mind. So it never got built again, but it gives you the sense of how the, especially Hitler's involvement in the pagan occult, but what, what, what kind of, you know, site and structure this thing would have had. Jesus goes on to say, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He's really, really, really going out of his way to say, man, I know you live in a place that's got demonic stuff going on everywhere and it's thick. Antipas, you know what Antipas means? It means one who suffers in place of another. Does that remind you of anybody? Anybody? Jesus. Should remind you of Jesus, right? But in verse 14, he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, God's people, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice immoral sex. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet, uh, but he encouraged sexual sin. In other words, he claimed to be a prophet of God, but he taught things against biblical principles. And what Jesus is saying is, Pergamum, you've got the same problem. Now, the problem wasn't just that they were struggling with sex or that they were feeling weak under the temptations or or that they were you know that 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 that, that's not it he will address that later uh in fact jesus says i'm giving them time to repent you know so so he's not necessarily dealing with this what he's dealing with is there are people teaching the bible out there and they're teaching immoral sex is okay and so that's what jesus is really getting at here now, here's what's happening. In Pergamum, they have a real problem because the church, the historical church in Pergamum, explodes with a lot of people. But over time, they begin to get really persecuted and really rejected by the society as a whole. And so they all got together and they said, look, and the, the, the Bible's bad for business. The Bible's bad for church growth. We need to make Jesus more appealing. You know, we need to, we need to re-market re Jesus because, you know, the way we came out with the, with the gospel and the Bible, I mean, man, that was great at first, but we're, you know, not only are we losing people, we're starting to get rejected. We're starting to get killed for this stuff. We're starting to get attacked, and that is stressful. It's stressful. So we're going to change our tune. Because we want, you know, when you're open-minded, everybody loves you. But when you're narrow-minded, everybody hates you. 
And so, it's not that they didn't know the truth. It's that they didn't like the truth. And so they were saying, you know what? We need to come up with a version of Christianity that everybody's going to like. That everybody's going to buy into. Yeah, so we may skirt around of you. Yeah, so we may invite a few. Yeah, so. But hey, it'll be a far more wanted version of Christianity than if we just go by the book. So, you know, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna prevent the inevitable rejection that comes. We're going to augment this a little bit. And let's face it. We really struggle when it comes to what God says about sex. And this is the example that Jesus uses. My second point is this. Like God's word, and I, I worded this very carefully because I want to say it this way. Like God's word, sex is deeply spiritual. Sex is deeply spiritual. Not everything in life affects us the same way. But sex strips us down to our core and affects us in ways that we do not fully understand. And I would like to take a stand on this issue as well because I have seen the invisible hurt that comes over time with people who do not know how to handle this incredible fire that God has given the human being called sex. Harmless or hurtless sex requires a very deep commitment. When you are naked in front of somebody, that's big. That's deep. It should be. You should feel something. It should, it should, there should be a level of exposure there where you have just taken that relationship to a deep level. Right? We'll get to in a moment if you don't feel that. But let's say for a moment that That is what the case is. What Jesus is trying to communicate here is sex is this deep. It's a deep act. Now, what Jesus is countering it with is the commitment should match the same level of depth. Why? How does Jesus define love? Does Jesus define love as sex? Mm -mm. What does he say? Greater love has no one than this, that he what? Lay down a life for a friend. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, you guys, you go up to this temple, you have sex with their prostitutes, but those prostitutes will not give their life for you. Those gods that you're worshiping, they did not give their life for you. But I did. I gave my life for you. That's love. The depth of my act matches the depth of the act. Jesus is saying, when you go and hire a prostitute, you pay them what? Two, three, four hundred dollars? For most of you here, that's a very small percentage of what you earn in a month. That's this much commitment for an act that's this deep. And what Jesus is saying is, when you have an act that's this deep, but a commitment that's only this deep, what are you left with? Shame. Because you know you went to a level of depth that your commitment is not at. I share my bed with my wife. 
My wife has had to die a thousand deaths to live with a man like me. <laughs> I was not thinking I would get an amen out of that. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, when me and my wife stood at the altar, I did not just gain a bride. There was a, a part of my singleness that died. And I have seen over the last 15 years of marriage, there are many times where I've died to myself for my wife. Far more times that my wife has died to herself for me. You know what that is? That's depth of commitment. That's greater love has no man or woman than this. Then you give your life for a friend. And so when that is matched evenly, so the depth of commitment matches the depth of the act, what do you have? Well, let me tell you what you don't have. It would be inappropriate for, tell, for me to tell you what happens in my bedroom. So let me tell you what doesn't happen in my bedroom. Fear. Shame. Um, well, there is a fear. I don't want to get pregnant. You know, that, that's... So I will, in all honesty, you know... That sex has a certain fear with me because three and three years, I mean, you you understand the power. So, you know, but I think you get what I'm saying, you know. (laughs) As soon as I said that, the Lord went, really? You know, in my heart, you know. So, So to clarify, you know, but there's no fear in the relationship. No shame in the relationship. No performance in the relationship. Why? Because the depth of commitment matches the depth of love. My wife has died for me, and I know that. And I've died for her. She knows that. There's an equality to it. Now, what happens when there isn't? Where you've got this huge, deep act, but it's met with this level of commitment, it often produces something awkward and odd. I know because I've experienced this. There's a, there's a shame and what happens is you have to kind of callous that shame. Because who, who wants to feel shame? No one wants to feel shame. No one wants to feel guilt. No one wants to feel awkwardness, you know? You, you want to be able to, wow, that was great. I don't want the after effect, but I really liked doing it. But I don't want the after effect. So what do we do to get rid of the after effect? You got to harden a little piece of your heart. You got to harden a little piece of your heart. And Jesus was saying to the church in Pergamum, I don't want you to teach this because over time, maybe not in the beginning, but over time, your people's hearts are going to get a little hardened and hardened and hardened until pretty soon sin isn't all that harmful anymore. It's really not all that bad. When God's saying, no, this thing will kill you. This thing has the power to, to drag you way, way, way down. It has the power to make you unteachable. All of a sudden, you won't hear from anything or anybody. Start making dumb decisions. Why? Purely because the heart's getting harder and harder and harder. Hearts, hard hearts often don't feel it when they hurt people. That's why we call it a hard heart. One time, I was uh, in a marriage counseling situation. And I remember I was the junior pastor. I went to my pastor and I said, this marriage, this, these, these couple is never going to make it to the altar. I mean, 
there's so much going on here. I'm surprised they still come in. I, they have no date, no time, no nothing. And I don't think they ever, this is never going to, this is never going to make it to the altar. And the pastor said, well, why don't you just have fun with it then? So I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Got a permission to you know, experiment a little bit, you know? So we're in the sessions. And I'm taking them seriously, but I'm thinking, man, you know, I, I want to I take a few risks here. And so we finally got on the subject of, of sex. And, and, you know, and they're like, oh, yeah, we're, we're fine in that department. We do it a lot, live together. It's wonderful, you know. Um, we've been think- and, then, and then the dude, the dude looks at me and says, we've even been thinking of having an open relationship. I didn't know what that meant yet. Uh, I thought they were talking about each other. I'm like, you're not open now. You know, but, yeah, you know, now I know that means, like, Anyway, so, uh, so they, you know, and I could just tell the approach, and, and I could tell that the, the, as soon as I went down the road of sex, it was the dude that was, that was carrying the conversation. So I was like, okay, okay. And I, finally, I don't know what caused me to say it. But I looked at, I looked at the bride-to-be, and I said, well, can I ask you a question? Because maybe I've seen this come up later in marriages. Maybe it's best just to clear it up now. I said, do you, do you ever feel like, You've been violated by him. And he's like, what in the world are you talking about? You know, we're having sex. It's great. You know, we need to move on. This, there's no problem in this area, Pastor. And he's, you know, he's just going on and on and on. And, and, and she wasn't saying anything at first. So I was like, all right, you know, maybe, maybe I'll move on. So I'm like kind of going through my notes, you know, next. And when I look up, she just had this look on her face. And I went, uh-oh, inside whoa, I think I might have struck something here I wasn't meaning to. And I could just see the intensity. And, you know, he looks over at her and he's like, hey, come on, man, tell, tell him everything's okay, you know. And, and I'm, you can just see the eyes starting to well up. And, and she looked at him and she said, you know, I have told you from time to time I don't want to do this. I want to stop. Or I have told you certain nights I'm not... I, I need I need some space, and you won't let it go. And you make you 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 say you're all rejected, and so I feel manipulated into going to bed with you. And I'm like, oh man, I'm I'm like, oh man, I just started a storm. And so he uh, he looks at me. He's like, what the? What are you doing? Why are you asking? He's getting all mad at me. He stands up. He pounds his hand on the table. He's getting in my face. I back up. I won't tell you how it ended, but I still have a pretty face. So I won't, I won't tell you how it ended. But I'll tell you this. You know what I learned? He was more angry at me than he was caring for her. You know why? Hard heart. Oh, yeah, we're having sex. It's great. Da, 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 da. Man, just, just poke just a little. I asked one question. And all of a sudden, this guy wants to tear my head off. Now, if he had a soft heart, you know what he'd done? He'd have grabbed his bride's hand and said, you know, I'm sorry. I didn't know that made you feel that way. I didn't, I didn't mean to disrespect you. Can we, can we talk about the pastor? Would you pray about this with us? We, ha- we, have, a, we have something here that I don't want to take into our marriage. Instead, the guy's looking at me saying, why in the world did you ask that question? Angrily. Sex is deep. It has a power we don't fully understand. It's like this. That's why Jesus says the commitment to match it has got to be like that. Because it affects us so deep.
What does just Genesis 1 say? They were naked and what? Unashamed. Why? Because they had the equal connection. A deep act, naked, exposed, but a deep commitment. What did Adam say to Eve? You are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You are me, I am you, we are one. That's commitment. That's we're going down on the ship together. Okay, I need to move on from this because even I'm getting a little wigged out by it. All right. Uh, so, so verse 16, he says, Therefore repent, or I'll come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. Remember, that's the word. Point number three, deep down, the question on the table that Jesus is asking this church, I think it's a good one to ask us. Either the word is changing us or we're trying to change the word sometimes. The question, are we trying to change the Bible or is the Bible changing us? You know, are we looking for what it says we want it to say or allowing it to say what it really says? Repentance starts with very one simple thought. I've heard people preach on repentance. I get so confused, I start running around in circles. And I'm like, God, I don't know what repentance is. What is repentance is? Repentance begins with this. It just begins with one thought. It's when we look up to God and say, you know what, God? I'm wrong, and you're right. Help me. Help me. That's repentance. You live in that, you live in that, you're living in repentance. God, I'm broken. Please make me whole. God, I'm freaking out. Please calm me down. God, I'm a mess. Put me back together. That's repentance. It's more of a change here. Because eventually that change filters into the behavior. But it begins here. God, I'm wrong. You're right. Help me to follow you. And then point four. God says... Deep down, we are truly known. In verse uh, 17, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Oh, that's kind of weird. Wow. Isn't that weird to you? Do you understand what it's saying? It's saying that there's going to be a name that Jesus gives you, and only the two of you know it. Isn't that kind of odd that a God that's got to, you know, corral billions of people around would know just you? That's powerful, isn't it? There's a name that you and him share that nobody else knows but you. You ever think, you know, man, we're, man, when we die and go into the afterlife, it's going to be crowded. There's going to be tons of people there. How am I going to find Aunt Matilda or Uncle Joe? You know, and I probably won't be able to shake Jesus' hand for a million years because everybody got there before me. You ever think that, you know? It's just going to be one big trip to Disneyland and you're going to be waiting in line all over again. But now since you don't die, you might wait in line for 10,000 years. I mean, you know, we, we can kind of get that sense of, I don't know if heaven's going to be all that fun because there could be so many people up there. What is Jesus saying? 
you will not get lost in the crowd. There's a name that he knows, and you will know it too. He'll call out to you, and he'll say, that's me, and that's him. I know it. I know it. Ushers, if you'd come forward, I have a gift for you this morning. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give him a white stone. You and I probably wouldn't understand what a white stone is. But back in that day in western Turkey, a white stone had huge, huge meaning. On the one side, I have written the words forgiven. On the other side, I have written the words invited. If you were given a white stone in this culture, then it meant one of two things. First of all, that you were invited to an important banquet or party. That you were invited. The second thing is that you would, if you were standing in court and they were about to uh, render a verdict, if your verdict was not guilty acquitted, they would give you a white stone and when you walked out of the courthouse, you could lift it up and show everybody and your reputation is restored, your business is restored, you are not guilty, you are acquitted, the public cannot have anything against you because you were found not guilty of those charges. So this morning, I want to offer you what Jesus offers you, the white stone that on the one side says you are acquitted, you are forgiven, and on the other side says, you are invited to a banquet for a man of great honor, Jesus Christ, King of the universe. Amen? Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, this morning, I pray that we would receive the encouragement that your word loves us, that you love us, that you gave your life for us. We don't have to go after some idol, something, when we have the lover of our souls right here standing in front of us. God, that you give us the hidden manna and the white stone, that you invite us, and that when we come we are acquitted, forgiven. All of our sins, forgiven. Our reputation restored. All our hurts healed. All our brokenness made whole. And that we will not get lost in the crowd. You will call out a name that only you and us know individually. And then we will know it's you we will experience such love and joy. We'll enter heaven with a white stone in our hand. Thank you, Jesus, for that white stone. You purchased that through your death and resurrection. This morning, I'd like to make a simple invitation. Jesus is not something you're born with. Faith is not something you're born with. God is not something that just happens. At some point, the Holy Spirit knocks on our hearts and 
we make that choice. Say, you know what? I want to become a follower of Jesus. I want to have this white stone that I have here on earth. I want to have it in heaven. I want God to have a name for me that only him and I know. If you'd like to become a follower of Jesus today, or even just rededicate that, say, you know what? I've been dry and distant, but you know what? I want to, I want to get back on the path. Please bow your heads, close your eyes. If that's your intention, look up at me right now. Amen. 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 Many of you. Why don't we pray this together? Say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Fill my heart. Give me the white stone with a new name. Fill me with your spirit. I'm going to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.